I guess I'm going to sing later. I don't know. No, not yes. Not yes. <laughs> Trust me on that. Hey, just for fun, <clears throat> who recognizes that? Okay, that helps. Okay. There was a long-running controversy in the Star Wars universe, and by long-running, I mean it lasted almost 40 years. Most of us are hopefully at least familiar with the storyline of the original film. Many of us probably watched it. I have seen it several times. It was later named Episode 4, A New Hope. That film famously opened with a scroll. The full scroll read this way. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. So the major plot is all about destroying the Death Star, and the stolen plans for it have, have, been, have revealed that there is a flaw in the design. There is a weakness in the design. The thermal exhaust port, nerds, the thermal exhaust port on the Death Star is so vulnerable that a photon torpedo fire, fired into the port can it, it go in there, hit the, hit the reactor, and hitting the reactor cause a cataclysmic like, chain reaction that would and did destroy the Death Star, thanks to Luke Skywalker. His <laughs> his <laughs> okay. We love amens, but we're just surprised sometimes. Okay. Not just Luke Skywalker, but of course the fact that he chose to use the Force instead of the onboard targeting computer. Now, one of the things that bothered Star Wars, Star Wars fans was how the Empire could be so stupid as to build the ultimate planet-killing weapon with a weakness like that. A fatal flaw that would enable one pilot in a tiny X-Wing fighter to take it out. For nearly 40 years after the original film was released, the plot hole was a running joke among even those of us who were committed Star Wars fans. But that plot hole got fixed in 2016. And how it got fixed is an unknowing nod to something beautiful and thoughtful and powerful that the apostles Paul and Peter and even Jesus himself were already working on in the pages of our Bibles. From the start... A reminder, we're in 1 Peter, even though I started with Star Wars. From the start, Peter has reminded his readers that they, like the people of Israel before them, were in a kind of exile. They were scattered throughout Asia Minor, now modern Turkey, in the Diaspora. And again, the Diaspora, for our purposes, is uh, the, the dispersion of the Jewish people beyond Israel. The dispersion of the Jewish people beyond Israel. It was a term that was used to describe Israel after the exile, which Peter now applies to the church in the world. He's used a lot of terms, we'll see again, uh, from Israel to apply to us as the church. His first reference to the diaspora doesn't show up in our English translations, but it was in the opening two verses of the letter, the, the greeting. In chapter 1, verse 1, he refers to his readers as exiles scattered throughout the region. 
Peter calls them exiles. Elsewhere, depending on the translation, uh, he will call them, and us, foreigners, aliens, strangers. After opening with a prayer of thanks for all the blessings God has given us, he then teaches us how to live in chapter 1, verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 10. And in this section, Peter gives us five exhortations, which we talked about over the last two or three weeks. Those exhortations are to put your hope in Jesus' return, to be holy in all you do, to live your lives in reverent fear of God, to love one another deeply from the heart, and to nourish a hunger for God, to crave pure spiritual milk. In the first part of chapter 2, Peter then demonstrates how we, the church of Jesus Christ, have now become an extension of the people of Israel and God's calling on Israel. The calling that was originally theirs has now become ours to take the light of God's love to the nations. So in the closing verses of last week's passage, Peter used several titles and images of Israel from the Old Testament, and he applied them to us, the church. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And each of these phrases describe or define our group identity as the church of Jesus Christ. Out of this group identity, then, Peter will begin to talk about what it means to follow Jesus as faithful exiles under first century Roman rule and culture. And then in three sections, he will address our relationship with governing authorities, he will address the relationship between enslaved people and their enslavers, and he will address, address the relationship between wives and husbands. Before he goes there, however, he has some introductory words to set things up for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, literally beloved, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Gentiles is actually the word there. Pagans has a negative connotation. I don't think he means that. It just means the peoples. Live such good lives among the Gentiles that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. Earlier, Peter exhorted us to be holy in all that we do. Here, he begins to expand on what that means. Abstain from sinful desires. These things, he says, damage the very heart of who we are. But then he turns that negative statement about abstaining from sin into a positive statement. Live good lives among the Gentiles, the peoples. This is basically Peter saying the same thing he just said about abstaining from sinful desires, but now he restates it in a positive way. To abstain from sinful desires is to live good lives among their neighbors. And in a sense, everything Peter says in this passage is fleshing out what it means to be holy in all we do. The second of those five exhortations. To grow in Christ-likeness, to be transformed and ever-transforming into the image of Christ is key to our mission, Peter says. Again, he writes, just the last part there, what I just read to you. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The goal is not to defeat our persecutors. The goal is that they will see our good deeds come to faith and glorify God when Christ returns. 
Our good lives, our good deeds are missional and evangelistic. The terminology Peter uses here is the same that Jesus himself uses in the opening paragraphs of his Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So now that Peter has given us this quick introduction to the section, he begins with the relationship between his readers and the Roman government in verses 13 and 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. These are some of the good deeds followers of Jesus are to do. This is a good part of what it means for them to live such good lives among their neighbors. Do you notice that Peter tells us to submit ourselves to every human authority for the Lord's sake? Not for the sake of the empire, but for the sake of the Lord. There is a sense here Not only that this is what God wants of us, but that it does God good. It does God good when we submit to human authorities. It speaks well of God. It speaks well of Christ when we do so. Earlier, Peter says that we live good lives so that others will see our good deeds and glorify God when he comes to us. In verse 15, Peter adds to that reasoning, not only do we live good lives so that others will come to faith, but also because it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. It's God's will. There are foolish people, words used in other parts of Scripture to talk about people who oppose God. There are foolish people making accusations against Christians. And this is how Peter uh, tells them to deal with these things it is not god's will that you that we silence the ignorant talk of foolish people by rebelling against them by arguing with them or by harming them it is god's will that we silence them by doing good good to them and good for them or as jesus would say it is god's will that we bless and not curse our persecutors and those who hate us We've heard a lot about taking America back for God over the past, I don't know, 50 years. But that kind of language is militaristic and is not at all in line with the way Scripture speaks of our calling as followers of Jesus in a society that doesn't understand us or can be outright hostile toward us. Jesus doesn't take back anything, at least not in the way we most often think about it. He gives himself up. He lays himself down. He goes to the cross And he dies. And we are to follow Jesus' example in everything. And then Peter adds in verse 16, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Did you catch that? Is Peter contradicting himself? Is the Bible contradicting itself in one verse? How can we both live as people who are free and as people who have been enslaved by 
or to God at the same time. Now, Peter's not contradicting himself. He is naming a reality. To be truly free is to be enslaved to God. We are free. We are free in Christ, and we are free from any earthly authority who might think they own us. They don't. Not the Roman Empire, not this empire, not the Galactic Empire. We are free. And yet, we are enslaved to God. That is, to be truly free is to live as God teaches and commands us to live. And in this case, in this context, Peter says, God calls upon them to submit to the governing authorities. When Peter refers to his readers as being in exile, he calls to mind the exile in Babylon, which the Jewish people suffered some 600 years before. And this is how Peter must have pictured what was going on as he wrote this letter. He, he wanted the church of Jesus Christ to survive and to thrive in that context. And to do that to the degree that it was possible, fellow Christians would need to find a way to survive within the system as ancient Jews did in Babylon, to submit to the emperor and the local authorities, to choose to honor them and to do good. This is a good place to bring up an important caveat. When Peter tells us to submit to every human authority, he does not mean that we are to do so when what we are being told to do by that human authority runs contrary to the word of God, contrary to God's commands. In the Old Testament book of Daniel Daniel does indeed submit to King Darius in exile, but only to a point. When the king's edict demands everyone to pray to him and no other god, Daniel refuses, and he suffers the consequences, which is, by the way, a way to submit to the powers. You suffer the consequences when you break the rules, even if you break the rules because it's the right thing to do. You can read all about it in Daniel chapter 6. Submitting to human authorities will sometimes mean that we suffer for doing the right thing. Peter gives these instructions so that his readers might survive as faithful followers of Jesus in a difficult and oppressive situation. And it is highly unlikely that Peter intended or expected his instructions to this church to change anything in that society or to invert or subvert or reverse its unjust uh, systems and just to dissolve it and break it apart and remake the whole thing. I don't think Peter could have possibly seen that as a logical outcome of what he was saying. But I also think it is highly likely that God was doing that. That God was at work in ways of which Peter was unaware. Peter may not have intended that his fellow Christians would subvert the unjust Roman system and practices, but God might well have done so. Peter might not have known what was going on completely, but God did. By teaching the church to submit to the governing authorities and to live lives among the people, God has sown the seeds of transformation into the society. By teaching us, by teaching the church to submit to the governing authorities and to live good lives and to do good to them, God has sown the seeds of transformation into that society. God, if not Peter, is engaging in a bit of subversive submission. It's a term we've used before. Subversive submission. And this idea of submission pops up in three places in the larger passage that we're in. 
It's in chapter 2, verse 13, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to argue in a couple of weeks that it pops up a fourth time, more covertly, when Peter writes to husbands to be considered as they live with their wives, to respect them, and to see them as co-heirs of the gift of life that Christ has brought them. Stay tuned for that. There's no way to get around the reality that submission to others, sometimes even to others we do not like, sometimes even to others who wish to do us harm, submission and servanthood is the way of the follower of Christ. It is the way of the cross. And this is where we need to keep something in mind. We need to keep in mind that these commandments were written for us, but not to us. They were written down and preserved for us, but they were not written to us. We live in a different context where different rules and different expectations apply. And we need to keep those things in mind as we read things like this. For one thing, we have the power to vote people out of office. Peter and the people to whom he was writing did not. And while the system of slavery, which comes up in next week's passage, is no longer in place for us here, there are other abusive situations where the right and most loving thing to do is to get out of the situation or to protest or to take legal action against it. The enslaved people of Peter's day simply did not have as many options as people in abusive situations have today. Our context is different. More about that in next week's passage. Peter may well have had the same intentions as the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote a letter to those Jewish people living in exile in Babylon, giving them instructions on how to live here and how to, or how, how to live there in exile and how to survive. And he wrote this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We submit to the emperor because it is right, it's the right thing to do, and because in the end, it's better for us too. As the church, it's better for us as it was for the exiles. So that Star Wars controversy I mentioned earlier was fixed, as I said, in 2016 with the release of a prequel, not those stupid prequels that George Lucas created in the 90s, but Rogue One, which is arguably one of the best, if not the best Star Star Wars films ever made, but I digress once again. In that opening crawl from Star Wars that I read to you at the beginning, there was one sentence that producers and writers and creators looked at, and they took it, they took a line out of that, and said, we can make a whole movie out of this. The line was, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star. Took that, and they made a whole movie. Rogue One is the story of how those secret plans were stolen, and why there is a fatal flaw in the design of the Death Star in the first place. It's because of this guy, Galen Erso. Now, he tried to avoid working for the Galactic Empire in the construction of the Death Star. It was against his conscience to do so. Knowing, however, that it was going to be built with or without him, he decided to, my words, these aren't used in the film, I don't think, submit to the emperor 
and help to design and build the most powerful weapon in the galaxy, all the while building into it the seed of its own destruction. A thermal exhaust port through which a single photon torpedo could ignite a cataclysmic chain reaction. And it would be unfair to talk about Star Wars without showing that. (laughs) Galen Erso in Rogue One practiced subversive submission. And by doing so, he undid the Empire. At least for a bit. Later on, the Empire Strikes Back. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) To those of you online, somebody said, spoiler. Okay. (laughs) Y'all are a fun group today. (laughs) Where was I? Oh, yes. In 1 Peter, God does something similar. Whether Peter realized it or not, God was at work in these opening remarks creating a bit of a weakness in the Roman Empire. He designed a people, a people who live as exiles and strangers to bear witness to the goodness of God, even to their enemies. And if those enemies, those persecutors can come to faith in Christ and are transformed in Him and ever transformed into Christ's image, there will be a subversion of values. A subversion of unjust systems. A subversion of lifestyles and choices that run contrary to the will of God and the kingdom of God. And it will be like yeast spreading through a batch of dough. It ain't going to happen as fast as we might want it to happen, but it will happen. God's most subversive act of submission was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But even before that, it was God becoming a human being. Think about it. The creator of the universe, the one through whom all things were made, almighty God, took on flesh and blood and bone and made his dwelling among us as one of us. God submitted to human limitations, all of them, to subvert the whole thing from the inside out. God submitted to human limitations in order to subvert subvert the whole thing from the inside out. And then one day, Jesus, who could have chosen not to submit to the governing authorities, submitted himself anyway. He was betrayed by his friend, arrested, mocked, spit upon, tortured, and put to death. His, too, was a subversive submission. Perhaps the most cosmic act of subversive submission ever he subverted death he subverted hell he subverted judgment as he died on the cross and he subverted it from the inside out peter's instruction in this week's passage and in several weeks to come is all about going the way of the cross the way of jesus Peter will describe it this way in next week's passage, speaking of our willingness to suffer even for doing the right thing, Peter exhorts us. In verses 21 and 23, chapter 2, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
Christ is our model, our example. We do not retaliate. We do not make threats. We entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. And we live good lives among our neighbors, even our enemies. Why? Because as God's chosen people, as God's holy nation, as God's royal priesthood, as God's special possession, this is our calling. This is our gift. And this is the way of the mission of God in Christ. Would you pray with me as we close? God, we are your people, and you are our God. We are your temple, and we pray that you would make us holy like you are holy. We are your children. God, you have set us apart. God, for the sake of your glory, for your purposes in this world and in our lives, would you make us holy just as you are? Would you set us apart for the mission that you have before us? Would you set us apart in a way that we walk into every situation in our lives as Christ would walk in? That we would walk the way of the cross. And where we struggle, God, where we push back, where we fail, we thank you that your grace is sufficient. And we ask for wisdom, Lord God, for what all of these things might look like for us in any given situation. And may you receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.